He just ran away. My kids were trying to tell me something bad had happened. And yet, it was so bad that they couldn't stop laughing. So it was really hard for me to figure out what horrible event had just taken place. It was a Sunday afternoon after church and the Woods boys, Ethan, Eli, and Evan were at our house. And they were hanging out and most of the time uh, when the Woods came over, uh, there was a bat and a ball involved in um, all kinds of baseball. Except on this day, there was a bat involved but it also involved would-bees. They were using a, thank goodness, plastic ball bat to hit would-bees that were swarming our carport. And it just so happened, Ethan Woods, and he was in middle school, sixth or seventh grade at the time, he miscalculated. And he hit the antenna on my car. And the antenna broke off and went flying, which is fine, no big deal. Things like that happen. But Ethan just panicked. And he threw the bat on the ground and then turned and ran as fast as he could across an acre of yard into the woods behind our house because he was so fearful of what was about to happen when I found out that he had knocked the antenna off of my car. I often just think about him just running as fast as he can through my backyard. But as I approached the scene, there were eight kids just howling in laughter, many of them rolling on the ground at his response, at his panicked response to just run away. And that's all they could get out. He just ran away. He just ran away. And then here comes Ethan, out of hiding, walking back. And the hilarity of the moment made it impossible for me to be angry in the least. I never replaced the antenna on the car because I would just look at it and laugh and think about Ethan running across our backyard. And I remember asking him, Ethan, what was your game plan? Like, what were you going to do when you got into the woods behind our house? How long were you going to stay there? Did you think we would not, we would never find you behind our house running through the woods? Were you that panicked and scared? As if you just shot someone, you ran through the yard into the woods behind our house. Adam is created in God's image to know and obey God, to assert dominion in the garden, this place that God had given him. And yet God promised that if you disobey me, you will surely die. But Adam believed that the fruit of freedom was better. Instead of trusting God and obeying God and seeing freedom in that, Adam decided to call the shots. 
Adam decided to sin against God. And once the realization hit him that he had died, once the guilt and shame overwhelmed him and kicked in, his response, his response, get this, to the all-knowing Creator, the one who created all things, his response to the one who had given him life and breath, the one who created the planet, the one who carved out the garden and said, this is yours and I'm going to be here with you. His response in light of his sin was to just run into the trees. To just run away. That's what he did. He just ran away. And it's funny if it weren't so tragic. It's hilarious that he thought he could just run away if it weren't so devastating. But that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 3. And the reality is, is we've all been running ever since. But the good news of Genesis chapter 3 is this. This chapter is appropriately called the fall of man. Because this is when we fall into sin. Adam represents us before God in the garden. And he represents us in disobedience. We disobey the same way Adam disobeyed. But he is our representative in the garden. And this is where we fall into sin. It is appropriately called the fall. But if you read the chapter closely enough, you will see that this chapter is way more about God's response to our sin than Adam's running from his sin. Guilt and shame that causes him to hide. What we see in Genesis chapter 3 over and over is the good news is the good news that God hasn't abandoned us. As soon as Adam's teeth went into the fruit, he should have been banished, destroyed, judged forever. But that's not what we find. We find that God is still there. And we find something even more shocking as verse 8 begins. God is still pursuing the man. He's moving toward him in his guilt. While Adam runs, God pursues. Notice verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. Now, first part of this verse is way more than just personification. Kind of giving human attributes to God. We read the whole Bible, we know who this Lord is walking in the garden. This is the pre-incarnate Christ walking in the garden. And they hear Him. And notice in the cool of the day, this is better translated wind. And this refers to the Spirit of God. And so man knows God is present. And he is to have fellowship with God in His presence, the person of God. And he hears Him. And notice his response. The man and his wife hid themselves. Now, 
Up until this point, Adam has failed to lead. He was to destroy the snake, send him out of the garden, provide, protect, lead his wife, and he has not done so until this moment. Now he's going to lead. And how is he leading his wife? He leads her to run from God, hide from God, cover their sin. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Man created to be face to face with God. We we saw in the chapter before that once Adam and Eve were created, they were naked and unashamed before God, meaning they had nothing to hide. There was no shame, no guilt. They knew God face to face. They knew one another without sin. And now they are hiding from one another and they are hiding from God. And notice where they hide. In the trees. Why is that important? Because these are the trees that God created for beauty and provision. And the trees in the garden are to tell us that God had given them enough. He had provided them enough beyond what they needed. Even the beauty of the garden. And here what God created for beauty and provision, they are using to hide their evil. Which is another reminder, you didn't have to do this. Adam, look around at the trees you're hiding in. You had enough. What did you do? Why did you do this? But what is going on? Why do they hide themselves, notice, from the presence of the Lord? You see, the shame they had between one another was one thing. The guilt, we have sinned. But the intensity of that guilt in the presence of God is telling themselves something else. This is the one you sinned against. This is the one whom you have offended. The holy God. This is the one you sinned against. And so sin's not just general here. They feel the personal offense against God as His presence moves in and they hide. But notice the glory of verse 9. But the Lord called the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Now immediately we would tremble. But we have to understand the grace in the where are you? Because God knows where he is. God knows what he has done. Why is he asking where are you? This is for Adam's benefit. And this is the same thing that God said to Israel when he said to them, though your sins are like scarlet and stained, come, let's reason together. Let's talk about it. And though you have sinned, they will be washed whiter than snow. This is God calling out to Adam for his repentance. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? He knows, but he is calling him to himself here. Now you should praise God for the where are you's in your life. Stop and think about those moments. The moment you came to faith in Jesus. Where were you? What were you doing? And how did God say to you, where are you? 
Where are you? When the word of God convicted your heart and you saw the beauty of the gospel and the cross and Jesus' righteousness and you trusted in him and you followed after him, praise God that he says, where are you? And praise God for the where are you's here today. Some of you got a text message last night. Just checking in. Haven't seen you in a while. You come into BFG? Well, I see you at church tomorrow. That's more than just your friend wearing you out about doing what's right. That's God. Where are you? Where are you? You need the word of God. You need the church. Where are you? God gloriously still comes after us with the where are you's. But notice Adam's response. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. Ironically, the word heard here can be translated obeyed. (laughs) I heard you and I did something, but it wasn't obedience. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God's response is, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Notice Adam's why here. Why did you hide? You are the reason I hid. It's true. Adam is naked. And it's true. God scared him. Why? That's the question. Why? He blames God. You are a little too aggressive approaching me. Your tone. I didn't like your tone. So I ran. You sounded a little too legalistic. So I hid myself. The reality, it's not the truth's fault that you are convicted, angry, and scared. It is your sin's fault when you are convicted. Some of you are saying, my marriage was just fine until that marriage workshop. <laughs> Everything that we had going on, it was, it was just the way I liked it. My, hint, my sin was hidden. And in the way we talked to one another, we were just fine with that. It's not the truth's fault that you're angry. It's not the gospel's fault that you understand where you fall short of the glory of God in your home. Some of you are saying, I was really good at grumbling and I really enjoyed it. I was really good at venting and I delighted in gossip. And then the word of God through James came and described my mouth as a fire from hell. And I have been convicted ever since. I am convicted ever. It's not the truth's fault you're angry. It's your sin. It's your fault. Adam doesn't want to admit his guilt. And he goes even further with that in verse 12. He blames his wife. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Now, remember in chapter 2, Eve is this precious jewel of creation that is incomplete until she is created. Adam is enamored with her. She is of the same essence, but she is different. Eve is mind-blowing to him. 
this gracious gift from God. And now his tone is, if you hadn't given me her, this would have never happened. It's her fault. But we notice it's even worse than that. He's blaming God. The gift that you gave me in this woman is the reason I am now cursed. It's your fault I'm scared, and it's your fault in giving me her that I have sinned. Then the Lord immediately turns to the woman and he says, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. God literally says to Eve here, what in the world have you done? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And she tells the truth. Satan is the deceiver. He is a liar. He twisted the truth. He said what was evil was good. And she embraced the lie. But notice both of them are not owning their sin completely. Blaming God. Blaming his wife. And now Eve says, the devil made me do it. Not owning her sin. And I wonder if the same thing's going on in your life today. You realize you're not right. And you continually choose things that are not good for you and that are not in line with God's word. Do you own that readily? It's me. It's my sin. This is why I'm convicted. This is why I'm guilty. The shame. It is my sin. Or who are you blaming? Some of you are blaming God. You look back over your life and you say, if God hadn't allowed these things to happen, I wouldn't be so bitter. I wouldn't respond to others the way that I do if God had not allowed these things. It's God's fault. Others of you here today, you blame your your family. The good, glorious gift that God gave you in a family and you say, it's her fault. The The way she treats me and the way she talks, it's his fault. If he would just lead and he would do what's right, it's their fault. It's the kids. If they would just obey. And you're blaming others for your sin instead of saying, the the problem is me. The problem is my willful disobedience to God. And some of you are blaming Satan. I just got tricked. And yet you know you are willfully deciding to disobey God. And instead of confessing that and saying, it's me, you blame God, you blame others, and you look for a way out by blaming the devil. But notice God's response. And we see an order here. He goes to Adam first, then Eve. Doesn't even speak to the snake, but when he begins to curse, he goes to the snake first. And what we see here is that there are consequences for sin. Notice verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go. And the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And she shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. Earlier, Satan is described as the most cunning, the most deceptive. And here he is the most cursed. And the snake that Satan uses will crawl on the ground. 
This means when you see a snake, some of you like snakes, and it's weird, and it's not right. When you see a snake, you are to see Satan's little hand puppet. And you are to see the face of evil. And you are to remember how sin came into the world. But as he crawls on the ground, you are also to remember he has been humiliated and eventually his little head will be crushed. Jesus wins. But it is a sign in the world of what has gone wrong. But notice the enmity here. You will be humiliated and then I will create war. The word enmity here between your seed and the woman's seed, it refers to rage unto murder. There will be evil that will run rampant into the world because of you, Satan. And we see this as Genesis begins to unfold. Satan continues to war against God. And he uses man against man. And in the next chapter, it's brother against brother. Cain will kill Abel. Esau will war against Jacob. Joseph's brothers will sell him into slavery. There will be pharaohs that war against Israel. Eventually, emperors will war against the church. And Jesus will stand before the Jews, his brothers according to the flesh. And he will say, you are like your father, the devil. And they will kill him. The point is, evil will continue to run rampant. And there will be evil and good raging. But notice the promise here. One day this war will cease because there will be one born of woman. One that will come from the offspring of woman. And notice the last part of verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. It's the same word, but there are different results. There will be a fight. And ultimately there will be one born of woman who will war with you, Satan. And you will hurt him. The the way you will hurt him is his heel will be bruised as he crushes your head. And what do we see here? It's hard not to even say it. It was coming at the end of the sermon. But we see the seed born of woman who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is crushed at the cross under the weight of sin and death. And that is how he destroys the serpent. He takes his power away. He crushes his head. And now his doom is sure. He will be laid to rest in a lake of fire and torment forever. Here we see the first curse here involves a gospel promise. And God is the prophet declaring the gospel. But notice as the curses continue, he goes to the woman and he says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you shall bring forth children. This this actually could be translated in conception. And what he is referring to here is everything associated with bringing human life into the world will be cursed. There will be barrenness. There will be difficulty. Life will still come into the world, but it will be painful. And everything associated 
will be hard and difficult. And then he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. This word desire means to dominate and then he shall rule over you is a grab for power. And what is being described here is the war and tension that happens in the home. The home is cursed. Eve is to bring life into the world. She is to be a nurturer. She is to be a helper in the context of marriage. But marriage itself and bringing life into the world is cursed here. Notice as the passage t- continues, verse 17, And Adam said, because, or yeah, and Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree, I commanded you. Now he's not saying there's... Eve did did this. He's saying you are responsible to lead and protect, and you didn't do that. You obeyed your wife instead of me. When I said do not eat of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain you shall eat all the days of your life. It will be difficult and it will be hard for you to provide for yourself and your family food. The word pain here is used... It's the same word used of pain and childbearing. It, it, there will be much travail in working the land and providing for yourself. And in verse 18, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth and you shall eat of the plant of the field. This, the, all of this will, will be difficult to do. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Adam is cursed according to his responsibility. He was to rule and reign. He was to cultivate life and order in the world. Now bringing life into the world is cursed. Providing and cultivating life in the world is cursed. Providing for that life is cursed. His work is cursed. Until he is cursed in the ground. And notice, dust you shall return. There is a reversal here of the scene when Adam was created. He was taken out of the ground. What God is saying is all of this life and creation is cursed because of you. And your work will be painful. Remember, work is not a curse, but work is cursed. Now, what do we see in the cursings? What is is to be our initial reaction? Why did God do this? Why did he curse the snake? Why did he curse the woman? Why did he curse Adam? Because his word is true. There are consequences for sin. God said, you shall surely die. And now they are dead and dying. And they are to fill that in their daily experience. As they work the ground, as they produce and raise families, they are to fill this curse all the days of their life until they stand at each other's graveside and weep. Can you imagine Adam and Eve's funeral? God said this would happen. And you are to live your life looking around saying, God said this would happen. Listen, you are not to get used to this world. And the way it is. Don't do it. Because you're not to get used to the consequences of sin. Some of us downplay what's going on in the world. And we act as if this is the best it's going to get. And it's not. 
This daily is to remind us of the curse of sin. And we all suffer in general the justice of death for sin. Some of it is out of our control. Some of it is the sin of others that we suffer. But we suffer in a world cursed with death and sin. There's persecution. There are miscarriages. There's abuse. There's divorce. There's famine. There's tornadoes. There's fall that leads to horrible winter. Work is hard. It's hard to provide for your family. Are growing young unto life. We are growing old unto death. And we are to remind, remind ourselves, yes, you shall surely die. God's beautiful and glorious. The glory we see in the world, it is still cursed with sin. And we want to get more beauty. We want to get more goodness from, we can't. Why? This world is cursed, and it is to be a painful reminder to us daily. Life is hard, painful, difficult. Why make it harder with my own sin? Why sow more death into the world, into my own heart and into my own life? We're to remember God's word is true. There are consequences for sin. But notice verse 20. <clears throat> we begin to see hope very clearly. Immediately after the curses that are horrible, horrific, we fill them. They're like shells on our back daily. Verse 20, the man called his wife Eve because she was mother of all living. Think about that. You hear the horrible cursings and you're processing what you have done. And this is Adam's response. Oh, there will still be life in the world. Yes. You haven't abandoned us. We still get to live here. We still get to do what you created us for. To be fruitful and multiply. You will be the mother of all living. Eve, yes. There's hope in a world cursed with death. But then the hope gets even greater in verse 21. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. And he clothed them. It gets even better. Life's going to come into the world. And then God goes even further. Because you have believed the promise, Adam. You're trusting me to eventually do something about your sin. What does, Adam, what does God do for Adam here? He provides what they could not provide for themselves. Adam made coverings to hide his body from leaves on trees. But what does God do? He provides the life of an animal. This isn't God saying, all right, now let's fix you up. The leaves are ridiculous, man. How about let's go with some leather? That's not what's going on here. God is providing something they could not provide for their sin. Sin demands death. And the garments here that cover them, the garments of skin that clothe them, they, they mean a life has been taken. God has sacrificed animals for their sin. This is why in chapter 1, life is, it, it, there's an emphasis on life and the creatures that are created because the law will demand their life for sin. Life is precious. Even animal life is precious here. And it will demand 
sacrifice for sin, but God, who is a prophet declaring the good news and the curses, he becomes a priest here offering the first sacrifice for sin for Adam and Eve. Isn't that glorious? God provides a sacrifice in light of their pathetic leaves. He gives them so much better. Now, I wonder, the question for you here today is, what are you trying to provide that's better than what God has provided for you in Jesus? Some of you aren't hiding from church. You're hiding in church. And you think if you show up here and you serve and you go to all the things that we have and you pray the right way and you go to the Bible study and you do all the things that you can cover your sin up, you can't. The same way that Adam and Eve hid in the trees of beauty and provision, you hide in the church, this beautiful place God has provided for you to know and love Him more, and you take the things of God and you try to cover your sin instead of just coming out and saying, the gig is up, I need more than these things, these things are good, and I want to obey and serve, but I need the blood and righteousness of Christ to cover me. God has provided something better. But notice verse 22, that the curse continues in the curse of death. The Lord said, behold, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. God is good, and he knows what is good. And he also understood what is evil before this moment. That's why he gave him the command. God, when God gave the command, don't eat of this tree, he knew the crossroads. There's good and evil. And God knows what's coming. God knew this. But until Adam sinned, he did not know evil or had not experienced it. And now he does. He knows evil and he knows sin. He knows the chaos and he knows the death it brings. This is the same thing we do with our kids. Hey, you want to do this? Hey, you want to move out? That sounded like an invitation instead of a warning. Oh, you really want to move out? Let me tell you what this is going to cost you. And let me tell you all the things that you're going to get into when you leave this place. And then they get out there and they do it. And you say, I told you so. I knew that was coming. And now you feel it. That's what's going on with Adam and Eve here. God knew this was coming. And now they feel it. But notice the grace here. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This tree that produced life in the garden and caused them to to be able to live there and have fellowship with God forever. God shuns him from this tree. Verse 23, therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then verse 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim with flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of the life. This tree of life that would have caused them to live forever, God drives them away from it. And the word drive is the same word used of driving cattle. It's aggressive. It's the same words used of Jesus when he goes into the temple with a whip and he is angry and he is mad and he drives out the money changers. Adam and Eve are driven out in judgment away from God. And it's a horrible scene because Adam didn't drive out the snake. Now he is driven out of the presence of God in the garden. And even more, God puts a 
angelic warrior to protect the garden. You can't get back in here. It's done. But why is it done? Why did he drive him away from life? He said, so he wouldn't live forever. So he wouldn't live forever in this place of guilt and shame and separation. And as Israel reads this, as they're entering the promised land, they are to be reminded of this. They are to see their story in the fall. Every time you sin, there will be judgment. And if you do not obey me as a nation, you will be exiled from the land and from my presence. And they are to see that. And you are to see the story of your life here also. That sin brings about death. When you choose to disobey God, there is death. You're sowing death. First of all, there is a separation from God. You were created to know Him spiritually and eternally. And you choose not to do that, so you separate from Him. And because of your sin, it's a personal infinite offense against God. You deserve to be separated from Him forever. To die and then endure eternal separation. You are to remember that as you see them walk out of the garden in God's anger against their sin. Shunning them from His presence. Keeping them from life. You are to see the consequence of sin. And you are to know there is death. But don't miss the covering. The coverings remind them, remind them of the promise. And though they would not live forever in the garden, they would die physically, there's something better coming. God doesn't allow them to leave the garden without a promise, intangible reminders of the promise. But who is the promise? See, we know the whole story, right? Some of us are already leaning there. This whole thing is an allusion to a life that comes through death. But who's death? So you don't live forever separated in the presence of God. There's still something better coming. But who is the better coming? Here's the good news. The one looking for Adam in the garden is Jesus. How glorious is that? Where are you? And he left heaven to come find you in your sin. Jesus did not blame his wife. He died for the sins of the church. Jesus did not hide. He accepted the blame for all of your sin. He didn't hide in the trees. He was exposed on the tree, the cross. Jesus is the one born of woman, born of Mary, bruised at the cross, crushing Satan by taking away the power of sin and death. Jesus endured the pain of Eve's curse in bringing life into the world. He brings new life into the world by enduring the pain of this world. Jesus embraces Adam's curse. He sweat, but he sweat drops of blood. 
and thorns of chaos and corruption were placed on his head to remind us. When you see the thorns on his head, you're to be reminded he is bearing the curse of sin. He is bearing the curse of sin on his brow. And he was placed in the dirt to dust. He returned in the grave for three days. And Jesus is the provision that you can't provide for yourself, nor an ocean full of blood of bulls, goats, and lambs. You can't do it. The skin on their back pointed to Christ, the one who was banished from fellowship with God on the cross as he endured the eternal wrath of God. The where are you, Adam, in the garden became, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Jesus embraced death to defeat death and give you eternal life so that you truly will never see death if you follow him. And you can say here today in Christ, To live is Christ, but to die is gain. You see, Jesus invites you to a better place than the garden, a city where it is always spring and never winter. You see, Romans Romans 5, 12 through 19 that we read earlier today tells us we have two representatives before God. Adam represented you in the garden, and if you don't like that, are you okay with Jesus representing you now? Because in Adam, you inherit your sin nature, your guilt, your condemnation, deserving death. But in Jesus, when you believe in his cross, you are justified. You've been forgiven of your sins. You're completely righteous as though you have never sinned and you've always obeyed. And you are accepted and forgiven in Christ to never be sent away. And the choice is yours today. Here's the choice. You can run and hide with Adam and you can keep trying to cover your sin up or you can run and hide in Christ, believing in Christ, saying to God today, I wonder if you would say to God today, all of the excuses aside, push them out of the way. The gig is up. I'm here against you and you alone have I sinned, oh God. And only you can atone for my sin. Only you can make this right. And the truth is, he has in Christ. If you would believe in him and by faith, take from the tree of life the cross of his death. By faith, hide in his garments of righteousness. By believing in him today. And for the Christian here today, if you're in Christ, the same panic, the same intensity where you drop the bat and you run as fast as you can. If you're in Christ, the same intensity you would do that with your sin, now you can run to him. Now you can run to him and confess it's true. I sinned, but Jesus never did. The question for you today, where are you going to run? 